This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman, and this is the London FinTech Podcast, episode 232, that's palindromic, brought to you in association with Smart and the EnlistedBoard.com. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Jovi Avero, Managing Director of Banking as a Service at Unlimit. Unlimit were formed way back in 2009 and offer a wide range of services and products, which no doubt we shall hear about later. They have an impressive 16 offices in five continents, so are a great company to join if you like travel. But before we get on to astonishing entrepreneurial success, we will dive into a not often covered topic of learning from entrepreneurial failure. I've always wanted to dive into this topic, given the degree to which the LFP naturally has focused on success. But as in life, there is much to be learned from failure as well as success. However, in the nine years to date, I've yet to come across an entrepreneur who is brave enough to share with us his times of troubles and the lessons he learned. Jovi tells me that he's failed in various ways in three startups, and most kindly, he'll share the lessons and journey along the way with us all. Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good afternoon, Jovi. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Mike, thank you. Thank you for having me. And in terms of bravery, I don't know whether this is one of the things that's taught you uh, bravery but you're quite a strapping young lad and I randomly <laughs> said because uh, we had been talking about Los Angeles for totally totally random reasons or family reasons you have, I randomly said that you look like you'd be good at American football at which point you told me that you'd been uh, I don't know pro footballer for 10 years in in, in London for some American uh, football team but which must, must be quite brave actually well um, brave or foolhardy I'm not sure which is true but yes I did play American football for three or four games um, I was a running back and then a linebacker. And believe you me, when they take hits, geez Louise, it's, uh, it makes you think twice about whether you've made the right choices in life. Yeah, that's what I mean. You've got to be both tough and brave to do it. And I don't quite know how American football developed. I mean, I don't quite know most things really, but uh, that's one of them, infinite number. Because I saw some old-fashioned clip the other day. Maybe it was 1950s or something. And in 1950s, it still looked like a version of rugby. Whereas, I think in the 1970s, was the first time I would have seen it on the telly, yeah. everyone was sort of dressed up as if there were sort of riot police and running into each other. So I don't know when there was a, the big phase shift in American football from kind of like a, a version of rugby to what we have it now. Yeah, I think there was a, a big shift in the need for more gore and violence in sports. Um, I've never been a fan of rugby, don't hate me. Uh, my love of American football came from watching... Ray Lewis, who was a linebacker for the Baltimore Ravens. And again, I'm a big, I like to champion specific people, and his story inspired me. So I watched him play, watched the Ravens play, and I thought, you know, I can do that. So I went on Google, searched for a team in London, found the London Hornets, did the trial. You know, they said, yep, you're strong, you're quick, sign you up. And then that that was it, hooked. And so in the training, just to toughen up, do you have to sort of practice like running into brick walls and things like that just to get a feel for the game? <laughs> Not brick walls, but into huge strapping guys. You think I'm big, some of these guys were juggernauts, and yes, you, you would take hits. And I think I mentioned to you earlier, when I took my first hit, I got up and I went to myself, Christ, I don't want to do that again. And it makes you gun shy, which is the last thing you need playing American football. You have to be brave. The minute you lose that, that ability to say, yes, I want to go gung-ho, 
you will get hurt. I hated rugby. Mine was a, a school that played rugby, and I liked football, which I didn't play, although Likewise. I played tennis ball in the break. But I, I did remember that um, in rugby it was the same idea, that you either tackle somebody or you don't. Which I learned, being a sort of fast learner at the time, I learned from that and managed never to tackle anybody. <laughs> I had a great strategic sense, I was always on a different part of the pitch. Let me tell you a funny story about rugby very quickly. Um, so I played rugby once in sixth form and I tackled some guy. He was a, a, a very, very good swimmer for the sixth form. Bad tackle, dislocated his knee. His parents tried to sue me because of that. Oh, what? Yeah, literally. That's insane. Crazy, right? Put me off the game for life. Gosh, gosh. Well, I've, I've broken my knee a couple of times, but we won't get into that. It's not a recommended uh, <laughs> no. option, actually, if anybody's listening and thinking of doing it. So, well, normally at this stage, we talk about your career journey to give the audience an idea of where you're coming from uh, and, and how you got here. But in this case, maybe we, we blend that into um, the main course topic of case studies around setting up businesses which didn't entirely succeed in the end. What led you in the first place from dislocating people's knees to whatever job it was? Were you sort of somebody who always wanted to work for yourself or did you just work for other people and realise how terrible that is and they thought, well, even I must be a better boss than this? Yeah, I, again, <laughs> I should not admit this, my first ever proper full-time job was at McDonald's and I got fired from that job just because I was sick. If I had any knowledge of labour laws... Had you eaten too much from McDonald's? I ate far too much McDonald's. But yeah, the guy sacked me because I called in sick and he didn't, he didn't like that. And it was then I thought to myself, you know, how dare you? And I've, I've killed myself working you know, for this company for the last year or so. And to be fired just like that, it made me not want to work for large organisations. And, and I think that's what sparked my entrepreneurial spirit. But it went against my father. Um, he initially said, and this is typical of Nigerian cultures, Joby, here's a path for you. School, university, law school, politics in the UK, go back home to Nigeria, politics there, president, mapped out. How hard can it be? Exactly. And I pretty much fell at the first hurdle by taking psychology as my undergrad. <laughs> yes, let's just say he was very, very disappointed. But anyway, I, I like psychology because I like to understand the way people think and interact in social environments. That really, really intrigued me. And then from there, I, I guess I found that I was good I guess, good with people. I was a good people person. And I guess I wanted to transfer my ability to build rapport with people and connect with people on meaningful uh, levels um, into a role. And I landed my first job at a brokerage firm. And essentially, I was, let's say, you know, the bottom feeder there. I was a cold caller for the senior traders. You know, I would go through it. And things typical of, of the Wall Street type journey. You'd get, to get a phone book, you'd cold call, qualify the clients and then pass them on to a senior broker who would then pitch them and sell them stocks. And that was my first foray into the financial services and investments. I made quite a name for myself in that every prospect I qualified opened an account. Um, so it was more about quality. Was this your large family you were calling? <laughs> well, this is normally the kind of thing that people do. I mean, back in the day, uh, I had a buddy. We did a lot of deals through Namura. And there they were given the telephone directory to, you know, start with A kind of thing. And um, I'm not joking, but the, the people who did use their initiative and had sort of well-off relatives seemed somehow to show better results. Well, sorry, no well-off relatives here. You know, <laughs> just more, more, more perseverance in trying to make sure that good quality prospects were qualified. But anyway, that set me apart from my colleagues. And my senior trader at the time, a guy called Lane Clark, he noticed that. And he took me aside one day and said, look, Joe, ultimately... Um, in this field, in this industry, money goes uphill, shit runs downhill. You and I, let's start our own firm. 
And bear in mind, I just come out of university, student loans, debt, was supporting my, my family in Nigeria. I took a leap of faith. So again, I think this is a key aspect of being a good entrepreneur, when to take that leap of faith. Because if you want certainty, I don't think you can ever progress unless you're happy living in a comfort zone. So I took a leap of faith, you know, and had no hard skills about how to run a business. And Lane and I, we left. Um, we took a book of our key clients. And I think we left with about two mil AUM. And we grew that firm, um, CA Trading, then into Beta 2, into at its height just before the two, uh, 08 financial crisis to around 130 brokers on the floor. Uh, we got to 75 AUM. I know it's not huge in the grand scheme of things, but for two guys with no real knowledge. And when did you found it? 2004. So four years later, you got to 130 brokers. I'd like to say we were lucky because you could throw a dart at anything in that period and it would go up, essentially. Yeah, but I mean, uh, not many businesses went from two people to 140 in, in, in four years. So, you know, again, one of the important um, things I think that I take from this one already, which is that it's really easy to see um, failure a little bit like a toddler learning to walk by, which we all did by holding onto the sofa yeah. and creeping around, we fall over and then we stand up again and we, keep, we, we carry on. But an important uh, lesson to learn. In fact, I was only thinking about this yesterday, actually. I couldn't remember the name of the peer-to-peer -peer I was thinking about. But a business can be very successful and then fail. Yeah. Or then not proceed. And that's not how people see it. People generally, if you talk about failure, think, oh, you started a business, it never really got the funding, or it didn't get the product market fit, or yeah. it ran out of capital, or, or something happened. But actually, you can have a significant business. You're absolutely spot on, really. Um, there was a period of time, I think from 06 to 08, where it was the perfect dream. You were working with good friends. Everybody was making money. I remember we were in Canary Wharf, you know, that's where we had offices at the time, and you know, we'd go to Smolensky's on a Friday afternoon you know, at 2, 2 p.m., get drunk, get plastered, because it was just so good. Everything, everything worked well. And then 08 happened. We had to pivot the business. We had to cut headcount. We managed to weather that storm. And then it got to around sort of 2010, 2011. I started to get bored with it, you know, opening the Bloomberg's, looking at positions, managing risk, talking to clients. And I wanted to take a step back and then pursue something else. And that's when I did my MBA um, in 2013. But this was the first real, real lesson in terms of failure. Our plan was always to have an exit, you know, to, you know, to, get, to get bought out. But we struck out, essentially. We had the bulk of our positions pegged um, on the euro position. So we're trading euro Swissy. The Swiss National Bank unpegged their currency. Rates went sky high. Counterparties defaulted. CMC markets are pari. It was a huge thing. Our pari were our main counterparty. They held 85% of our customer funds. They went under. We tried to survive, and boom, we failed. So what was the lesson learned there? Risk. We did not manage our risk effectively. We had a high concentration of risk in um, our pari. And more importantly, we were too heavy in the Euro Swissy. But, but two failures on that side. One, the risk element. And I guess maybe unfairly, because I had taken a step back and was doing my MBA, I was aware of the ins and outs of the office, but not deeply aware. So I delegated, not delegated, but most of it was left to you know, my co-founder. Um, so he controlled all the positions. And I guess blind faith in him to manage positions led to this um, and then boom, it collapsed. Yes, I think there's a, a number of layers in that, isn't there? I mean, I think the first one is that you're being too um, modest in that you created a very successful business, which 
weathered 2008, which is the worst banking crisis, markets crisis since goodness knows when. I mean, the equity markets tanked in whatever it was, 87 and whatever it was, 98. I forget the numbers, but it doesn't really matter. But the, the banks weren't tanking so much. So to have created a business, that was a great success. To have weathered a terrible storm, that was a great success. And then you were hit by this extreme event. I mean, didn't the Swiss rates gap by 2% yeah. or something? Yeah. I, I vaguely remember. And having worn a risk hat myself, everyone as a platitude says you have to manage risk. Yes, of course you do. You have to be sort of careful crossing the road and, and everything like that. But I think the people who haven't been in a sort of a risk role, by which I mean an old-fashioned one that cares about business rather than the regulator, doesn't appreciate that there are always a set of circumstances which will destroy, metaphorically speaking, any battleship. Yeah. Yeah. Something can take any of the American fleet down. Indeed. Or any tank. A leopard seems to be catching fire at quite a rate at the moment. It can be blown up by some circumstances. And, let's take in the aircraft carrier as an example, you could potentially build that carrier stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger until it was nigh on indestructible. But then the bloody thing wouldn't really move. Yeah. <laughs> You'd do about sort of a metre a day because it'd be so big and, and so strong. So I think this also applies to... Um, definitely applies to business and it definitely applies to financial risk, that if you cover all your bases risk-wise, now I'm not saying that you were, but even if you did, then you guarantee to make no money because the, the, the money comes from having ma made the risk. So I think there are those things to be said in your favour, which you're glossing over out of modesty. That having been said, concentration risk is always a, a challenge and, now, and just expanding from the markets into the um, entrepreneurial context. I knew a business that had a lot of revenue, as many businesses do, or relatively SME businesses do, uh, a lot of the revenue came from a very small number of clients, or, or one or two, and then they, those clients disappeared, so the whole business fell apart. And I knew another business where they had too much concentration of capital. So, you, you, you know, a listener starts his startup tomorrow, he gets a sort of bit of product market, he fit, friends and family, a bit of seed, and then some VC comes along, so they'll give you a whole bunch. Yeah, but then you're basically working for them, and if that VC for the sake of argument, your partner leaves and some other jerk takes over, then he makes your life in a misery. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot, lot of these things sound easy, but I'm not, not necessarily sure that, put it this way, you, failure can be avoided. Let's just start yeah. with the big thing at the, the beginning. I guess There's so. no business that can survive everything. That Most businesses true. that ever existed in the world have gone. That is true. I do believe you also need to be self-aware. And there are, look, again, you're, you've been very kind and gracious to say I'm being modest, you know. And again, we did we did have a good business, but m mistakes were made. Uh, if I look back now, a lot of mistakes were made on my behalf. I, I can recall um, an episode where, again, like, I kid you not, I seem to be King Midas in reverse. Every trade I touched turned to shit. And, you know, the, the old saying that there are no atheists in foxholes, I think it got to a point where I literally had a position in the market and I went on my hands and knees and said, if there's a God out there, please get me out of this hole. Again, emotional um, naivete, I guess, you know, and because when we started the business, we didn't really have any sound formal business knowledge. We were just two guys, you know, thinking, okay, because we've raised money from clients, we can manage the business. Were we lucky to ride the wave? Yes. No. Were we, were we successful a little bit? Of course. But it was the self-awareness to say, look, guys, you know, you don't know everything. Okay. You've been lucky. Okay. These are the good times. How prepared are you for the bad times? And it was that inability to foresee that the good times don't last forever, which I think made you know, the fall in a, a lot more harder. The other question, I mean, it's very relevant to founders who have co-founders. I mean, it, 
a number of individual founders I know have found it a very lonely journey, particularly if they end up with arsehole VCs or boards yeah. and, and, who, who feel it's just, oh, I'm going to this board meeting tomorrow. Oh, I quite like giving them a kicking. You know, it sort of cheers me up a bit, as opposed to a board that sort of um, challenges but is supportive. So it can be very lonely being a sole founder. Um, and then you get uh, multiple founders. Multiple founders can often break down because of keeping your dynamics going between four or three or whatever. And then you have a situation when you're in as a co-founder. And I don't know there, going back to your psychology uh, background, as well as just the practicalities of life, which is, as I say, you, you, you then move on to something else. So wearing my governance hat, there was a governance shift in how the company was, was governed. Yeah. And maybe that governance shift was an imbalance. Maybe if you'd been there, you might say, Bob, you seem to have all your money on the Swissy at the moment, mate. Are you sure that's right? Well, yeah. because people didn't like in life. If things are going wrong for a certain reason, there's this awful American phrase I hate called double down. Yeah. And there's a tendency to double down, you know. Yeah. I've bet the car, I might as well bet the house now. Oh, yeah. shit, the house gone, I might as well bet the kids. And, you know. I'm flinching because I, I, am, I, am I a believer in that? No, but, but, but I do like to take risks. I, I have learned, you know, and... So I love poker. I play poker and I'm, I'm an aggressive poker player. Why do you mean you punch people or something? No, no, no. <laughs> in terms of that, you know, most people when they play poker, it's very, you know, they like to play safe bets on a sure thing. I'm an aggressive player. I will play a lot of bluffs and I will try to take you off your best hand because I use so confident in your hand. So there is an element of me that likes, likes to double down, but you're right in terms of the governance. My co-founder, Lane, again, I love the guy like a brother, you know, and I trusted him implicitly. And we had a very strong relationship. You know, there were times when he would have heart palpitations because of the state of the business, and he would come to me and say, Jerry, look, you know, I'm really struggling, and we would talk. It was a big help, both of us, you know, being in that position. Yeah, I agree. Yes, and, and talking of poker, I don't know whether you've seen him play uh, online. You might find it interesting on, on YouTube. Magnus Colson. Um, who was a world chess champion for goodness knows, one of the best chess players ever. He didn't compete in the world championship this year, but he is a world chess champion. But also, he's Norwegian. He's been winning a hell of a lot of money in poker tournaments. And that's really interesting because they're the two games which are apparently sort of very, very different. I mean, chess is a game of perfect information. Yeah. And poker isn't. Although psychology comes into chess more than you might think at that kind of grandmaster level. And then just one thing, just um, tidying up this first case study. You mentioned the client funds. Yeah. Is that a, a regulatory failure? Because let's say you've got your client funds with, I don't know, say to use London terms, Barclays, and Barclays goes bust. Those funds should be, quotes, protected, and it shouldn't, quotes, matter that Barclays has gone bust because the funds should still be accessible. What was the zoom in on that one? Yeah, so the funds were held with, uh, I guess, you know, I can say it, Alpari, and they just went book, kibbutz. So there was a lot of legal wrangling. But didn't they hold those funds in separate accounts which weren't there in their own name? <laughs> You would have thought so. Um, yeah. So that was one of the main reasons why we went down because it trans. Again, I don't say too much about it, but a lot of clients, you know, were very, very unhappy. We were very unhappy. The lawyers got involved. The SCA got involved. You know, a lot of people got involved. You know, clients got some funds back, but it wasn't enough for us to weather that storm. We did try to rebuild, but it was game over. I emphasise that not just to sort of make you stare at your your pain again, but there's a kind of counterparty angle, which again many businesses cannot weather the failure of an important counterparty. And I remember reading, and it was kind of depressing, actually. It almost puts you off being an alcoholic. Keith Floyd's autobiography, I don't know, it was on some holidays, picked it up somewhere. And Floyd is the, sort of the TV chef, one of the early ones who was sort of well-known for uh, having a slosh of, of wine when he was cooking and all that. And he opened a business in Bristol. But he became a complete serious, serious, serious alcoholic, you know, um, 
just it was just heart wrenching to read about the sort of the pain he'd feel in the morning when he got into the shower and all that, and then he'd start drinking again. But anyway, his business went bust, and sort of the media image of Floyd is you know a bit of a lad, drank too much, jovial sort of chap. But the failure of his restaurant destroyed many other businesses in, in Bristol. Now, if you're those other businesses in Bristol, there are only a few high-profile restaurants. You're going to end up serving them. You know, again, it comes back to my thing about can you design a business that can weather all sorts of things. I mean, it seems to be there, there are a number of things that were a confluence yeah. in the situation you're in, and market circumstances were quite a factor. You make a good point, and Lane's attitude mirrored your, your sentiments, you know, whereas I took it personally. Mm. Lane was more the case, look, Jeremy, shit happens, you know. Yeah, yeah. Were we to blame? Maybe, but it wasn't entirely all down to us. He dusted his shoulders and he went right back into the game. I, I don't want to say I was depressed, you know, but it was, you know, hard. It spoiled your whole day. Yeah, it did, pretty much. You, you, you go from having, you know, a, a nice house, you go from having a nice car to eating at, you know, Gordon Ramsay's restaurant, Hospital Road. If you haven't been there, please do, it's fantastic. So that's how far you fell. You were actually just eating at Gordon Ramsay. You had to, go, you had to trade down that badly. Blimey, that must have I been know. tough, mate. That was a, 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 oh, it, was, it was horrendous. Um, but it, it, it did take me a while to pick myself back up again, whereas Lane just literally said, I will jump right back on that horse. But for me, it was, it was very, very hard. There's a number of things there. I mean, I, I created my own fintech in 1998, long before they existed. And I had some blue chip clients and turned over seven figures and as if just me that was okay one or two associates and I'd reached an agreement for a trade sale I won't say who in the early noughties of the business which was going to be um, uh, lots of dough and I was literally thinking on a Monday evening funny enough having negotiated with this sort of very blue chip name for six months management consulting yeah. where's an appropriate restaurant to go for something like this and I was scratching my head getting splinters in the fingers as usual and then I got an email from the chief partner saying um, you've probably seen Mike but we've been taken over by this other company and a quarter of the FS partners have been fired, uh. including you and me and this guy. And, and this guy's taken over your account thing. But to be honest, he's hiding under his desk. That pissed me off the whole day. And I was still a bit fed up by the next lunchtime, actually. And then also going back to life being strange things. We were talking about it from a more human angle for a change rather than the sort of the tech stuff. I recognised when you were talking about the reverse Midas touch, because I had the same thing happen to me. And that pretty much until, well, I don't know, save the sake of argument, 40 Everything I t did t turned to gold. You know, I did quite well at my sums at school and quite well at exams and, and all these nice. kinds of things. And you. Everything worked out. I was the youngest head of fixed income in the city, youngest and first uh, head of global risk, blah, blah, blah. I started my own business and that made sort of seven figures. And then all this, um, the sales lined up. And then, um, and then it was something like for the next five years, everything I touched turned to dust. You know, I got pneumonia out of the blue. I was in, in bed for six weeks. Couldn't get into London for three months. I got divorced. All the businesses I tried failed, or you know, just literally everything didn't yeah. work. And um, in terms of a much higher perspective on life, many years later, I had a, a shamanic journey, and I had a real insight. And this sort of so in the journey, so that you're, you're drumming and you're sort of in altered state of consciousness, and you're kind of in different realms, as it were. And I had this sort of vision of um, a, a theatre and those huge electric cables they have back at theatres of it being unplugged and the lights going out in the theatre, a clear understanding, and unless you've had anything experienced like this, it'll just sound like, oh, you had a daydream. Well, no, it's, it's qualitatively different from a daydream. It's a real sort of lived experience. And I had, I had a clear understanding that if that hadn't been done by me, funny enough, subconsciously, of course, or higher self, or whatever, I would have con continued being linearly successful forevermore. I thought, that would have been a bloody good idea, wouldn't it? You know? <laughs> Carry on like that, that'd have been great, that'd be much easier. Whereas as a result of that, it took my life in 90 degree direction. I, 
Qigong instructor, I became into Buddhism and, and a whole bunch of other things which 20 years later have added an enormous amount of richness and multidimensionality to my life which wouldn't exist otherwise. Yeah. So going back to sort of quotes failure and Midas touches and, and not Midas touches, there can be some deeper things going on in life. I mean, if you're a Christian, you might say it's God's plan for you. God didn't want you to be linear successful. He wanted to learn some stuff by going sort yeah. of a zigzaggy line. Or in a more kind of new agey framework, you know, your pre-life plan had a sort of set of points here. Like, learn these lessons in life, and then learn these lessons in life, and then learn yeah. those lessons yeah. in life. And so, as painful as those kind of zigzaggy journeys are, I think one often finds that people who've survived them by hook or by crook end up sort of richer and more rounded as opposed to those who follow the apparently simple and nice and easy linear path, which is the kind of reminds me of the Pink Floyd song, hanging on in quiet desperation (laughs) is the English way. I know people from school that have done the same job every year, year in, year out, and it's been much, quotes, easier than your journey or mine, but there isn't so much inside them, if you know what I mean. I mean, it's a bit like your linebacker thing, running into some sort of Hulk who sort of, you know, is dying. (laughs) Still feel the hit. It takes... I guess, a certain personality type to be able to go through that. And if, for example, you look at my wife, she's the exact opposite of me. And then she's a chartered accountant. She's worked for Citigroup, for Deloitte, for big companies. She likes safety. She likes stability. Quick digress. So when we first started dating, she'll hate me when I say this, but it's a good story. When we first started dating, she had broken up with her boyfriend because her boyfriend was not in a stable job. And again, you know, she wants stability. She wants something, you know, to be sure. We were dating at the height of beta 2 success. Um, and then literally after about six weeks of dating, I said to her in the pool, we're in Dubai, love Dubai. I said, yeah, I think I'm going to you know, leave, leave my role for a sabbatical and do an MBA. She was like, what? <laughs> Have I got news for you? <laughs> like, excuse me? And I went, yeah. I went, what do you think? She goes, I don't know what to think. But yeah, I, I say that because some people just like safety and security and stability. I think they're called sensible people, aren't they? They are called sensible people. <laughs> they are absolutely called sensible people. The world will not survive if the people were like us, I guess, you know, mavericks. Well, it's the sheep and the goats, and yeah. you need a few goats to shake things up, and you need lots of people who are quite happy not being crazy. Good. Okay, look, we've dived into that one in, in, in quite a lot of depth, largely because there's quite a lot of um, material in it. So before we get on at the, in the dessert course to Unlimit and uh, where you're the MD of banking as a service, which I was joking beforehand, um, we need a fintech that does debanking as a service for the, the UK, actually, to make it easier for banks to kick people out. Well, that one's ongoing with Farage <laughs> at the moment, but I think the, uh, the phrase never barrage a Farage might be coming <laughs> to Dame five and a half million at NatWest. Um, but anyway, so moving on to some other case studies. So after you'd been very successful um, and then got, a, got an MBA, which told you what textbooks say you do about founding businesses. Absolutely. What was the, what was the next incarnation? Well, let me be brief. So during the MBA, we, I met four of my good friends there um, who were on the course. And that was where essentially my love of fintech really, really happened. You know? And we had a startup. We formed it together. It was called Keep It. Which year are we now? Oh, this was in 2015, 2015, 2016. Keep It, a way to automate charitable donations. You know, and the premise is very simple. You simply connect your card to an app. And every time you spent, you know, at your local store, grocery, et cetera, et cetera, it would round up all your loose change, put it in a pot, and at the end of the month, it would go to a charity or charities of your choice. We did that because we found that donations to charities had been dropping in the, with the increase in contactless payments. 
I feel sorry for buskers these days. Yeah. Well, they've got their chipping pin. I know, but I mean, how many people will stop and flash yes. compared to chucking 50p or a quid in or something? True, very true. But keep it. So we developed that and we finished second in the Imperial Innovation Entrepreneur and Design Competition. And we thought, we have a business here. So we went to multiple accelerators. We got accepted to Techstars. And then I had a good friend who worked for a bank. I'm not going to say who. And he heard the idea and he goes, I think our bank would, would like to be a partner in this. So we prepared everything you know, and we went to the bank's premises, gave a fantastic pitch, demonstrated product market fit, demonstrated the use case behind it. And ultimately they said, yeah, we love this. We love this. And we're going to put forward your application for the accelerator and we want to be partners in this. We'll come back to you a week, two, three, six weeks later. Got a phone call from my guy who worked there and he said, yeah, um, sorry, Jovi, apparently this has already been developed in-house, so we're going to have to say no, and we're going to have to pull you from the accelerator as well, so thanks, but uh, yeah, no thanks. And that was all she wrote. So that's a, that's a good example of concentration risk, isn't it? I think also that one might be an example, uh, if, I, <laughs> if you suggest I was polite before, I'll have to even, <laughs> even the account out. Um, uh, that might be an example of an, an idea which wasn't going to be viable as an independent one because the likes of Monzo and Revolut, that's just a sort of functionality they developed in-house. And in, in this particular case, it was um, an in-house rejection. Although maybe it's also a bit like putting all the eggs in one basket in terms of capital, which I've also seen. And as I think I may or may not have told a story before, a buddy of mine, cut a long story short, ended up owning one of the largest electric bike companies in India about 20 years ago. And uh, they needed to raise money to go to the next level. And they had a worldwide, you know, VCs, blah, blah, blah. It's all going fine. They agreed with one VC. The due diligence period went on and on and on and on. As you can imagine, some business spread around India. China is quite hard to due diligence. So that in itself didn't look odd. But time was going by and time was going by. The, the, you know, the documents were about to be signed uh, the week before the money arrived. And then this... Um, uh, uh, this VC, I was about to preface it with uh, uh, an anatomical region that sort of doesn't see the sun very much. Um, so actually, we've changed our mind. We'll give you half the money just before the doc's about to be signed. So in the meantime, going back to life happening, the CEO had come down with cancer and had to go off for treatment. My buddy was the, you know, the principal investor and he sort of stepped in as uh, executive chairman, told the uh, anatomical VC uh, where to go. And struggled on manfully for a year or two, but it was, it was you know, hold below, below the waterline at that point, and it was just sinking and, and, and sinking and sinking. Well, I, we learned, we learned, we learned from that. And you learned specifically? I'll tell you exactly what I learned from that. Bear in mind, I said to you earlier that my, which is now my wife, by the way, uh, my girlfriend at the time wanted stability. And I'd done the MBA, she was hoping that I would get a job working in the bank or in a consultancy, which to me is like akin to death. And um, when I told her that, yeah, we're starting Keep It, you know, we've got these great plans, we're gonna get funding, we're on this and that, and it fell apart, she said, Jovi, that's enough now, time out. What did I learn from that? Strength in your convictions, you know, to say, okay, look, it didn't work out the first time, it hasn't worked out now, but I absolutely genuinely believe in my ability to launch a product and a business. Okay, these are two setbacks, and it's been, able to, I guess, fight a corner in the face of people saying, but Jovi, look, you've given it your best shot. You know, you've tried everything. You know, it's not working. We want to start a family. Life gets in the way of people trying to have dreams. And at some point, you do have to take a step back and say, okay, you know what? I've tried. 
It's not going to work out. I've got some obligations. But it's having a strong belief in yourself and confidence that, look, I can succeed and I will succeed irrespective of the setbacks we've got. Exactly. And another dimension to that, I mean, I've done some men mentoring uh, recently for folks, all of whom have to be sort of around about 40 or something like that, on uh, being a Ned and advisor and entrepreneur and uh, all this kind of thing. And one of the parameters that I think some of them haven't paid sufficient attention to is that it's much easier if you can harmonise the family team mm. behind you because yeah. uh, everything is a kind of compromise, no matter how much American atomized stuff we get. We all live in a context, we all live in a, a family or a relationship or a society and things like this. And it is much easier if you've got a partner who's also up for the journey <laughs> as opposed to one who's tossing and turning all night because they're worried about whether it's going to go Indeed. bust as well. So again, this is just, and again, I mentioned 40-something as, as, as a number for a particular reason, because the average 40-something has got used to the fact that life is the art of managing multiple parameters and trying to keep them all sort of yeah. you know, reasonably well. I mean, when you're a, a youngster, you can, you know, when you're leaving university or leaving school, you can just do whatever because it doesn't really matter. It's a bit like a, a toddler. I mean, a toddler falls over. It's not going to break too much. Yes. At your age, you're not going to break too much, but by the time you're my father's age, you fall over, you break things. You know, so the risk profile does change, course, does change over time psychologically yeah. as well. So then just um, briefly, because we've covered quite a lot, the third case study that you're caring to share. is the main one. It's the, it's the real life changer for me. So after a key pitch, you know, I thought, okay, let's take a step back and work. Let's work for a company. I don't like to work for big companies because I hate working in shackles. I'm an expressive guy. I'm a maverick. I'm cavalier. I like to take risks. Um, and I don't think that meshes well working for a corporate structure. He says working in the corporate structure. <laughs> Hear me out. We'll come back out. to Unlimited in a minute. Yeah, we'll come back to, in a minute. So I went to work for, in fact, really, I've had two good bosses, two great bosses. My boss, ex-boss Andy Patton, um, who was at Contis, which was a bass provider, now acquired by Solaris. He's now at Infuse. Um, and Kirill, you know, the current CEO of, of Unlimited. Different in, in, in good ways, but, but two good bosses. So I went to work you know, at Contis so as, a, as, a, as, a, as a, sales, a BDM. And that was where, not again... Not BDSM, presumably. No, 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 not BDSM. Not yet, <laughs> not yet, anyway. And launching card programs for companies, I really, really think I found my sweet spot. And it was there, as a, a BDM for Contis, I met my co-founder. Again, I'm not going to name names because it's still very, very sensitive. But I met my co-founder. And I was trying to board him as a client of Contis, which I did. He took me aside once we signed contracts and said, Jovi, look, again, like, like, like Beta 2, I think you're great. You've got to worry with people. You know, I, I can see how you'd be an asset um, in this company trying to start up. What is it? Um, it's uh, a, data, a data monetization company. We essentially help consumers see, control, and monetize their data. We have funding um, from a, a very wealthy Emirati family. You know, I'd love for you to come on board as a co-founder. Now, if you were sensible, you know, and you had done your DD on the co-founder, on the investments, you may take a step back and reassess. You know, but again, double down, risk-taking, cavalier. Andy, my ex-boss, did say to me, Jovi, I don't know if you're a risk-taker or a gambler. I'm not sure yet. But I took the leap of faith, you know, and I left Contis. You know, I went to work, this was back in 20, 2019, um, for this company. And... It went well for the first four months. It was great. And then things started to fall apart. Promises were being broken. Secrets were being, uh, being kept. Funding wasn't being released. Um, I was being made to tell elaborate tales to suppliers, to staff. 
it just got to a point where after eight or nine months, you know, where, where, where people said, Jay, well, look, what's going on? You know, we haven't paid suppliers. We haven't got the next tranche of funding. The product doesn't work well. You know, is this happening or not? You know, and I went to the, the co-founder and I went, look, enough. What is going on? And essentially, he laid it all out, you know, that he had not been able to secure the next tranche of funding. The product did not meet the investors' requirements, so therefore they were pulling the plug. And that was it. So there I am, you know, at 41, another failed startup. And bear in mind, this, was, this hurt even more um, because I'd left a very stable job. I had tried to convince my ex-employees to join me on this journey. And it was an absolute failure that left a lot of suppliers, a lot of employees out of pocket, um, a lot of debts there. It, it was horrific. Now, how long was the time period? That was a year and a half. I mean, that's very painful. One sees variants of that all over the place, though. It's not just in the entrepreneurial world. I mean, you know, I often use phrases like Citigroup or HSBC, but what do I mean? It's some vast organization, and there's loads of fiefdoms within fiefdoms within yeah. fiefdoms, and crazy things happening. And, you know, I'm thinking about Nick Leeson back in the day at Bearings, who kept up the sort of face and yeah. plenty of other sort of sad tales like that. And um, what can one say? Well, as you say, there's due diligence but I mean again I've come across cases where people have done decent due diligence but yeah you only know I mean it's a bit like marriage really you only know by being married yeah when you're in it you yeah. know day in day in day out um how it's going to uh, going to work well look that's been extremely kind being an audio podcast the listeners can't see the the pain i've been putting you through <laughs> uh, reminding you of not exactly the most enjoyable experiences of your life so i'd really like to thank you on behalf of the um uh, listeners for re-enduring the pain once more but most importantly sharing that with thousands of listeners who hopefully can remember what they need to remember from the show and avoid going through the pain themselves so at which point it's probably very good to point to trans transition on to uh, Unlimit and talk about them and they're a great success. They are a great um, success. But before I wrap up the show, I'd like to thank all the listeners out there and my brand partners for the podcast. Smart is transforming pensions and retirement worldwide. The leading edge retirement tech platform propelled them to success in the UK. Now they're operating on four continents and working with partners like Zurich and JP Morgan. Find out more at www.smart.co. The enlistedboard.com, your guide to entrepreneurial governance and how you can start making your board an engine of growth today. So, Jovi, you've been an excellent guest in two dimensions, one of which is that uh, you've bared your soul and your scars and your wounds for us all uh, to try and avoid similar scars and wounds. But also, we have mentioned almost not at all a limit other than my comprehensive half a sentence <laughs> in the introduction. And uh, when, I, when I came in, you kindly uh, went to get me some water. And I noticed that some of the stationery says unlimited. Now, as I'm very used by now to my complete sort of idiocy and, and, and lack of brain power, I thought, oh, shit, I've been typoing unlimited in all these emails that led to today for quite a long time. But uh, maybe you start with uh, whether you are unlimited or unlimited. Unlimit is now the name uh, rebranding. And again, a quick story. I, I loved it when we were called Unlimit because I would always start my story or a pitch or a presentation with how every time I say, hi, I'm Jovi from Unlimit, people would think, is he having a heart attack? Did he stutter? You mean unlimited? No, no, unlimited. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it was initially two words, unlimited and international. You know, marketing thought they were geniuses. Love you, Nadia. But yes, yeah, so we're rebranding now to Unlimit. Simple. Okay, and then just starting with sort of the big picture and then drilling down a bit more into your area. So Unlimit's been going for whatever, 15-ish years. 
I think recently you got a banking license or something, or software banking license, something funny like that, uh, from the Central Bank of Kenya, and you're in every continent in the world. Well, I say every, but I think there are seven. I used to think there were five, but there yeah, were seven actually. Seven. So you're probably not in Antarctica, nor a not smart, yet. Nor not a smart yet. pension. And I've lost track of which the other con- continent is. So anyway, just briefly then, rather than my pathetic intro, can you just give the listeners a short um, couple of paragraphs on uh, what Lum- Unlimit is as a business as a whole and who it sells to what, and then maybe a little bit zoom into your uh, banking as a service? Well, I like to very simply say that Unlimit, we help businesses make and receive payments. And we do that through a number of key verticals. The first one and the primary one is through acquiring. So we are a global acquirer. So we help businesses to process their payments, you know, with MasterCard, Visa, um, UPI, JCB, of which we are a principal member of. The second vertical we do it is through corporate accounts. So we help um, businesses in the IT sector, online e-commerce to open corporate accounts. Um, The third vertical is through card issuance. So we help these business CEOs, these owners, to issue cards to themselves or to their employees. And then you've got two new products of the Unlimited stable, essentially, uh, and that's Unlimited Crypto, um, which is headed by Jack Gia, a great guy. Um, And that is essentially the ability for companies to on-ramp and off-ramp crypto, um, cryptocurrencies. And then you've got my baby. um, And everything I believe in my journey to date has led me to here Um, is our banking as a service solution. And that essentially helps any business, any brand, any company to embed uh, through our APIs financial products into their offering. So if the London FinTech podcast gets more ambitious than it's been uh, over the last nine years and it's expanding and expanding, and I sign up for your APIs, what will that enable me to do? Well, borrow money or get my clients to borrow money? This or is a, fund a, it? a very good use case. So I think you're being too modest. I'm pretty sure you've got almost half a million you know, uh, listeners. So what you could do, you could brand you know, your podcast. I was going to do a, a LFP hoodies for, as a gedanken for some do time. Do an LFP app <laughs> that allows your customers to have your face branded on a debit card. Oh shit, that'll, that'll kill it straight <laughs> off. That, that's, one, that's one business failure thing we didn't cover. You're a good looking man. Not that I sort of noticed these things, but it wouldn't work in my case. You could embed your face onto a LFP brand. That'd be a good case study in failure. Never use your own face as the logo. Case study 76. And then... Uh, <laughs> the London FinTech podcast used to be a successful FinTech podcast until Jovi persuaded Mike to issue branded LFP Cards. banking cards, including his face on it. And they could get discounts by purchasing your merchandise. They could get discounts at various establishments. So it's just a way to, I guess, make payments for your customers frictionless. And that's the whole point of the Bass offering. And what is the, the channel to market for such a product? Because, I mean, obviously, in this whole world of fintech, you know, everything turns into an ass as a service. And um, in terms of business models, I've never quite understood what the channels to market are, to scale these offerings sort of yeah. rapidly rather than knocking on doors one by one, which is quite time-consuming, or yeah. going through the telephone directory, going back to earlier incarnations. Yeah, no retail method of, of selling here, more institutional. But funny enough, the best market is concentrated, and it's a very sort of incestuous circle. Everyone knows everybody, but there is a huge demand for BAS, off, uh, BAS providers. And if, for example, if you look at certain verticals, you know, crypto verticals, um, insurance, you know, neobanks, there's a huge demand for banking as a service. One thing that I always, always, always get when clients call me and say, look, we want to be the next Monzo or we want to be the next Revolut. And I say, okay, great, but what makes you different? Nothing, we're just going to offer an app, you know, and a card. And I think, okay, I'll, t- I'll take your money, but how is that going to scale? How are you going to grow your customer base? So everybody wants to be a Monzo or Revolut, you know, during the time when money, you know, you know, money was cheap and people wanted to do, focus more on growth than revenue. 
But to be really scalable now, you need a core and a key offering over and above just offering an account and a card, which is ubiquitous. Excellent. And so Unlimited have clearly been extremely successful. And what do Unlimit or your Bassbit division need to be even more successful tomorrow than they are today? Sure. From a Bass perspective, you know, I got into this. And again, my, my journey led to me trying to create a product that is going to help innovative companies with their financial solutions. And I think what would take us to the next step is partnering with those innovative companies, companies that can help solve problems. I'm a big, passionate believer in financial inclusion. I know we talked about it earlier, you know, and banking the unbanked. But, you know, how can we implement that? And the reason why this product for me is very, very personal is with our solution, it can help companies offer solutions to those that are underserved, unbanked or underbanked. That's just one key core offering. So how will we grow? How will Unlimited Bass grow? By partnering with fantastic, innovative companies that are looking for a simple, seamless banking as a service solution that is truly borderless. And that's where we want to get to. Excellent. Well, that's nice and clear. And as you say, I can see that your experience has led you to here and you're too um, self-effacing by saying that it's a question of... um, uh, failures. I mean, the first business was a better part of a decade. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Went through the, the biggest financial crisis ever and then was hit by the sort of one of the biggest storms in Swiss banking, perhaps, uh, uh, ever. And central bank doing um, crazy things. And the second one was perhaps not, was not a, such a unique idea that it would have succeeded. And then the third one, it was just this sort of sad human story, whether it's relationships, whether it's marriages, whether it's yeah. jobs, whether it's a football team, of the dynamics didn't work out at a, at a human level. And um, for a large number of people, when things start going wrong, they do clam up and, uh, and shut up rather, rather than opening up. But I, I'm very grateful, as I said before, to you for sharing all these tales and very impressed by Unlimit. Any fintech that started before 2010 is... <laughs> Uh, what Americans say is OG. I never knew why it's good to be an original gangster, but it's, uh, it's a country run by gangsters in, in Washington, but that's another topic um, entirely. So uh, I wish you and Unlimit every success in the future. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. If you're in need of a non-executive or advisory director with deep expertise, experience and contacts in the worlds of both traditional FS and fintech, or unique insight into how to make your board an engine of growth today, contact me at mike at mikeballiman.com. If you just need one-off advice in these areas, via clarity.fm slash mikeballiman. We could sit in a bender all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride Watching a happy moon ride To come away from the city Where the tarmac's so dead And the people so sad Come away from the city But with the faces so great With the pain of the
We are wild like the mountains and the trees. Can you see what I mean? Can you see what I mean? We fit in between the earth and the sky. Kiss the city goodbye. Wave the city goodbye. Watch the fire light dance with me. 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 Watch the